David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin Ant, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 9 o'clock a.m. Central Standard Time. It is the 24th of January 2020, and this is episode 186 of Bitcoin and the torch has been stolen again. Uh, we're starting with Torchlight. Uh, and it, it, this has happened to our dear friend Giacomo Zucco. Oh, you know, and really, it, it should have happened to like a not so nicer guy. <clears throat> Giacomo Zucco is one of my favorite people in the space. But this, this episode, as embarrassing as it, I'm, I'm sure it is to Giacomo, nobody can escape. Nobody escapes the pressure that goes on sometimes with the with the LN trust chain. Uh, the issue was is that Giacomo wanted to hand it off as fast as uh, humanly possible, and he ended up accidentally giving it to somebody with uh, a brand new account and maybe four tweets about Bitcoin in the account. Uh, I am so going to forgive Giacomo for this just because I know he, I know the poor guy is probably beside himself. It's okay, Giacomo. It's all right, bro. It happens. The shit happens. And what really sucks is that that thing had just gotten stolen, uh, uh, from, or from Jimmy Hama. Oh, good Lord. Uh, and at Jimmy Hama wants to remind us as of eight hours ago, he says, Dear all Lightning Network enthusiasts, I have enough donations to cover the loss of 1 million sats. I really appreciate your tips. Thank you very much. Lightning Network will flourish. Okay, so in case you weren't tuning in to Torchlight for yesterday, Jimmy Hama uh, had to reach into his own pocket to refund, or not refund, to relight the torch because, yeah, well, it, it got stolen by a shitbag. And then, well, here we are with um, Giacomo Zucco also getting a shit bag, stealing the torch. It's, it's, I was about to say it's awful, but it's not. This demon, again, this stress, this whole lightning torch thing stress tests a lot of things. It stress tests the network in a way, but it also stress tests wall, you know, lightning network wallets, whether custodial, non-custodial. Um, if you're, you know, running your own lightning, you know, channels, I mean, that are you balanced, you know, and and I suck at that, by the way, I'm, I am learning a lot about what it means, what channel balance actually means since I started running my own lightning node. Um, and there's, there's a lot to learn guys. Yeah. It's just, that's just the way it is, but could be worse. Life could be boring. There could be, we could already either know everything and not learn one more thing, or we could know nothing and live in ignorant bliss like the uh, Eloi from that famous book, 
about the time machine. I think it was called the time machine. I'm not exactly. It was like a very famous, very old book um, <clears throat> where the E-L-O-Y is actually how it's pronounced or a set or uh, spelled how it's pronounced. I don't know. It's I call them E-L-O-Y. Uh, other people call them Eloy. It doesn't really matter because they're they're stupid. They live in ignorant bliss, except the pay ba- the payoff, uh, what they have to pay for that by getting all their shit done for them. They're basically their butts are wiped. They get free clothes. They live outside. They want for nothing. All the food that they could ever want is delivered to them by these underground dwellers that are essentially the engineers of the entire freaking planet. What they extract in payment <clears throat> is the is every once in a while they come up and snag an uh, ELOI for a meal. They eat them. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, like I said, it could be worse. It could be boring, or you could live like an ELOI. So, in either event, uh, hats off to Giacomo and Jimmy Hama. Uh, thank you guys for uh, donating uh, to Jimmy Hama. That was pretty cool. Uh, again, this is one of the things that we learn is about the the lightning, the this trust chain. This is what it brings to the fore: is stress testing wallets, uh, how the network works, how the social interaction of the network works, what trust actually means. These types of things are really important to examine, and we get to identify shit bags along the way. Although that's probably not a good enough payoff. In either event, we I'm not sure where the LN Trust Chain 2 is at this particular moment. But apparently, it has been absconded with. And even, let's see here, or not a, even, um, we've got Justifer BTC asking what's happening with the LN Trust Chain 2. We're playing a telephone with a growing hunk of digital gold. If it gets big enough before someone steals it, we can donate it to something nice. <laughs> Um, oh yeah, it looks like, uh, yeah, wizard BTC, uh, underscore wizard underscore BTC seems to be the one that stole it from, uh, Giacomo Zuko. Again, don't give Giacomo too much shit, man. He's, you know, he didn't mean it. Yes. What it does bring to the, again, what it does bring to the fore is that we should take very good care of making sure that this shit, um, that we're, we're looking at who it is that we intend to s- send stuff to and, you know, just be careful out there, folks. Be careful. Let's get on with vital statistics. We've got BitInfo charts telling me that the price is, 8,500 bucks on average. We've got a high over at bit asset at 8,539. And it looks like we're going to have a low chilling out at GDAX at 8,451. Still pretty tight trading range. Uh, that in case you didn't know, we, we had like a 200 point drop overnight, something like that. Um, maybe, you know, maybe it is the Chinese new year that's coming up. Uh, I think it comes up on Sunday. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It it doesn't make a lot of sense because you got people like, you know, uh, Tim Draper out or Draper out there uh, telling millennials that they should probably buy Bitcoin. 
No, really, I'm serious. He did. I'm not going to get into that one today because this one um, I'm going to do. Sh- I'm going to go short on the um, on the news because I want to do something else. But as of right now, we have 316,000 transactions in the last day. We've got 13,000 transactions on average per hour. We've got 611 BTC being sent in that 24 hours, with 25,500 BTC being sent on average per hour. And uh, average transaction value is pretty, I don't know, it seems kind of low 1.93 BTC. And we got a median transaction value of 0.024 or about 200 bucks. Block times are pretty low, according to BitInfo charts. It's saying eight minutes and 50 seconds. Uh, we've got 0.1 BTC being taken in fees on a per block basis and 17 BTC being taken overall in fees in the last 24 hours. We have had a the slight increase in hash rate, a quarter of a percent. And that brings us to 115, 116 exahashes per second. Last commit to uh, the GitHub repository was sometime this morning. Yeah, sometime this morning. Ethereum is at 162, Bcash at 323, BSV at 280, Litecoin at 55, and a third. Ethereum Classic is at 8 and 3, or, God, 3 quarters. Dogecoin is at 0.0023. And it's uh, came close to beating the amount of transactions for Ethereum Classic at 34,250. Definitely walking all over Litecoin, but that's pretty much about it. Now, according to my node, the hash rate is 117 exahashes per second. And the mempool looks light. 621 kilobytes representing 541 unconfirmed transactions. We have some not full blocks. I've got three. I've got three blocks that are not full over the last 10 blocks. And it, yeah, I've got a couple of, I've got three blocks that came in within two minutes of each other. Other than that, everything seems to be right, you know, roughly around anywhere between nine and 10 minutes apart. Uh, so there's that. Now, <clears throat> Lightning Network, uh, 11,145 nodes. 36,000 channels with a network capacity of 885 BTC or about seven and a half million dollars of liquidity. We have six new nodes that came online in the last 24 hours, which is a 50% drop uh, over the last 24 hours. And in that same period, uh, we have 119 brand spanking new channels, but that's a 12% drop on a day over day basis. That's going to do it for vitals. Morning roundup now. The Daily Hodels uh, staff, they never really give the name of whoever wrote it. I, I don't know. I don't like that. It's not like the entire staff got together and wrote this story. But anyway, yesterday, the Daily Hodel put this out. Detroit man sues bank for refusing to cash his settlement check from a separate discrimination lawsuit. Whoa. When Santor Thomas showed up at his bank branch to cash checks he lawfully attained, obtained in a settlement from a racial discrimination lawsuit against his former employer, the clerks didn't believe the checks were real. The events that ensued highlight why Bitcoin and cryptocurrency advocates criticized the current process of verification and authentication, citing human decision making that subjects people to harmful mistakes. Oh, sorry, that subjects people to harmful mistakes, false conclusions, and outright discriminatory practices. Thomas, who is black, uh, 
was awarded an undisclosed amount after suing his employer, Enterprise Leasing Company of Detroit, for racial discrimination. But when he arrived at the Livonia Bank or, or branch of the TFC or TCF Bank earlier this week, the bank's employees accused him of trying to deposit fake checks. Jesus, why don't you just call? According to a report by the Detroit Free Press, the employees took swift action and called the police. Four officers arrived and detained Thomas for questioning. The bank's spokesman, Tom Winterberg, released a statement on Thursday, reports the Free Press, asserting that race played no role in how Thomas and his checks were handled. The bank said Thomas made an unusually high number of simultaneously simultaneous requests for several services. So, <laughs> God. Thomas, who reportedly had a low bank balance at the time of the incident, had attempted to deposit two of the checks while cashing a third, while also attempting to open a new debit card, according to the bank. TCF Bank told the Free Press that the clerk who served Thomas, was, who is also black, grew suspicious. Stop with the race, guys. It doesn't freaking matter. It's a dude cashing checks. Jeez, God, this is why we're in so much fucking trouble right now. Because people will just not let race go. How can you not be racist if all you think about is race? Stop it. It doesn't, it's not healthy. It doesn't do anybody any good and it causes bullshit. Stop it. Winterberg said the checks and questions were scanned through a branch's computer and revealed clear watermarks that read void. Quote, Thomas isn't buying it, noting the check cleared 12 hours later. He's upset that two officers questioned him inside the bank while two others stood guard outside, he said, adding he was an account holder for nearly two years at the TCF branch. He adds, I didn't deserve treatment like that when I knew that the check was not fraudulent. I'm a United States veteran. I have an honorable discharge from the Air Force. They discriminated against me because I'm black. Stop it. None of this would have happened if I were white. Stop it. That's not true. I've had problems myself and no other white people that have had problems themselves. And again, it's not a just stop. There's other problems here. The police did not arrest Thomas prior to leaving the bank. He cut ties and shut down his account and opened up a new bank account at a local Chase branch, which cleared his checks without incident within 12 hours. Since he had no car, Thomas promptly used the funds to purchase a 2004 Dodge Durango, reports the Free Press. He filed a complaint against TCF Bank on Thursday, alleging racial discrimination. Now, the whole race thing aside, this is complete bullshit. And again, I don't think it has anything to do with race. I think this has something to do with the fact that instead of calling the cops, they should have called the bank that was hold, I don't know, what do they call it, where the check was domiciled. It's the only way that I can, I can say it. If I write a check, let's say that I've got a Chase account. I don't because I don't like Chase. But let's say I got a Chase account and I write a check, okay? The name of the bank is Chase, and it's on the check. That check has a serial number, and it's that serial number, in part, is given by the account from which that check was written off of. You don't call the cops. You call the bank that the check was domiciled in, and you ask that bank questions before you do shit like call the cops. It's not that hard. My God, people, this all boils down to the fact that they called the cops first. 
Did it have something to do with race? I don't know. I wasn't there. I have to admit that. However, one thing that I am straight about is the fact that they could have avoided a whole bunch of crap. They could have avoided Detroit Free Press commenting poorly about TCF Bank. So the TCF spokesperson should be all over the teller about how and, and the entire bank should actually close, you know, I don't know, have like a staff development day where it's like, here's how shit works. You don't call the cops first. You call the bank, the domiciling bank to make sure that that check is legit. If they can't tell you whether or not it's legit or have some mechanism by which y'all can verify that and go ahead and run it through, then maybe we'll think about calling the cops or just toss the dude out the door. I don't know, whatever. In either event, this is why I Bitcoin. The following is not why I Bitcoin. Italian winery adopts interactive screw caps with blockchain verification. Stop it. Just stop it. Jack Martin writing for Cointelegraph sometime this morning. Piedmont winery Vignetta... Massi Vignetti, sorry, Vignetti Massa, is launching the 2018 vintage of its wines with near-field communication and blockchain-enabled caps. Jesus. What a waste. As reported by the Drinks Business on January the 22nd, Vignetti Massa is the first winery in Europe and the second globally to adopt Guala Closure's Nestgate technology. Guala developed the technology with Luxembourg-based software company Compieo by tapping an NFC-equipped smartphone against the bottle's screw cap. Consumers can get information about the wine-growing region, the vineyard, and the wine that the and the vine that the wine came from. The platform also provided ta- provides tasting notes and expert reviews. Additionally, the authenticity of the wine can be verified as the connected closures are linked with a blockchain platform that provides a unique identification code for each bottle and no token of value. That's me talking. If your blockchain doesn't have a token of value, then there's no reason to mine the chain, which is what gives a blockchain its blockchaininess. Stop it. Just stop. <clears throat> Winery co-owner Walter Massa explained the importance of this feature. One phenomenon that is not talked about much is the counterfeiting of great wines, as well as providing a new experience for the consumer. The NFC system guarantees the fight against counterfeiting and the black market for these pearls of nature, (laughs) assuring their authenticity and traceability. That's a quote from Walter. Oh, my God. The NFC closure will be applied to Vignetti Massa's what, Dorthona wine, along with three of its most prestigious crew, Dorthona Coastal de Vento, Dorthona Mentorario, Dorthona Sturpy. Uh, vintage, previous vintages of these wines are available between 25 and 50 bucks per bottle online. So this is far from a feature that is only available for the super rich. And over time, the technology could filter down to even more affordable price points. Affordability, like what? A QR code that's included with the file that you send the printer for the freaking labels. That's how you do this shit. I don't need a chip in a cap. I, I, this is ridiculous. 
I've most people already had more people have a QR code reader than this this NFC crap. I guarantee it. More people have the ability, either already have the ability, or it's going to be easier to figure out how to use a QR code reader and just read a, the label, just scan the QR code on a label. All this information could be put in a QR code. There is no reason for this. There's also no reason for a blockchain. There's nothing here that is even remotely in need of a blockchain. Most, <clears throat> I think a lot of people might agree <clears throat> if I say that it needs or it could be done on a distributed ledger. But guess what? That doesn't freaking matter because this all boils down to the weakest link in that chain, which is the very first link of the damn chain. It doesn't come in the middle. It doesn't come at the end. It doesn't come somewhere else. It's the first link in the chain because it's going to take somebody sitting down and typing shit into a database. What if the, what if he's, he or she's the counter, counterfeiter? How do you gonna, how are you going to block against that? This is, has gotten out of hand. It's been out of hand. It's going to get worse. That's why I read you guys these things so that you understand that we are well in the woods. We're nowhere close to out of the woods. We are chilling out in the deepest, darkest, dankest forest you can imagine. It ain't going to go away. It's just not. Why? Because Ripple CEO hints at IPO says more crypto firms will go public in 2020. <clears throat> of course, they're going to IPO. Cointelegraph Marie Juliet says Ripple CEO Brad Garlinghouse predicts the initial public offerings will become more prevalent. Speaking at the oh God World Economic Forum in Davos yesterday, Garlinghouse hinted that Ripple itself would be one of the firms to seek a public flotation. Quote, in the next 12 months, you'll see IPOs in the block, crypto blockchain space. <laughs> we're already there, Brad. We're not going to be the first and we're not going to be the last. But I expect us to be on the leading side. It's natural evolution for our company. You mean your shitcoin. An IPO refers to the process of offering the shares of a private corporation to the public in a new stock issuance. Keep that private corporation, decentralized money, private corporation, decentralized money. Yeah, those don't fit. That's why if you're holding a bag of Ripple, you're going to get burned. Sorry, but that's just the fact. For this reason, it is sometimes referred to as going public or as floating corporate shares to the wider market. The cryptocurrency industry has to date focused its energies on initial coin offerings, which evolved as an alternative issuance model for still young, innovative firms that spared them many of the cumbersome legal and regulatory processes involved in a traditional IPO. That's why you got scammed. Yet, as the space matures and arguably in the wake of the post-boom ICO route, which saw many offerings exposed as either outright fraudulent or simply unsuccessful, some firms are now seeking to build confidence with mainstream investors by way of public listings, i.e. the legacy system, on traditional stock exchanges with all of the red tape and financial disclosures that implies. This is a trend that Garlinghouse appears to believe will consolidate itself in the near future, even as some of the industry's largest players have thus far struggled to meet the stringent requirements of an IPO because most of them don't know what they're doing. As an alternative to adopting a traditional flotation model, 
major crypto firms such as Blockstack have instead chosen to pursue compliant token sales with the approval of the United States Securities and Exchange Commission. Silvergate Bank, a California-based commercial bank focused on digital currency business, went public with an IPO on the New York Stock Exchange in November of 2019. Yeah. All these people are collapsing in to the legacy system. That's all that's going on. That's all that's going on. There's no innovation here. There's none. There's no innovation with this shit. I'm sorry, but if you're a bag holding anything but Bitcoin, you're going to end up in with just shares of some bullshit company that doesn't really do anything because most of this stuff does not need a blockchain. I'm serious. 99% of everything in the world now and in the future does not need a blockchain. You don't need it. I'm sorry if you believe that you do. 23andMe lays off 100 people as DNA test sales decline. CEO says she was, quote, surprised to see the market turn. This was written yesterday by Christina Farr for CNBC. Home DNA testing company 23andMe is laying off about 100 people, 14% of its staff. My God. The layoffs include the operations team, which were focused on the company's, get this, growth and scaling efforts, as well as other teams. In the coming months, the company plans to tighten its focus on the direct-to-consumer business and its therapeutics arm while scaling back its clinical studies arm. CEO Annie Wajajdanicki, whatever, <laughs> told CNBC that she's surprised to see the market turn. Wajakaniki, whatever, has theories, but she doesn't have clear proof of why consumers are shying away from getting tests that reveal their percentage of Irish heritage, propensity for a favorite ice cream flavor, or whether they have a limited set of variants that are associated with breast cancer. Either way, she notes she's downsizing because it's, quote, what the market is ready for, end quote. This has been slow and painful for us, she said. Yeah, I'll bet. Wajakaniki Notes that privacy could be a factor. Fears about people's DNA ending up in the wrong hands might have been heightened in the aftermath of the Golden State Killer case. Criminal investigations honed in on a suspect involved in a decades-old rape and murder, well, several rapes and murders, by running DNA found at the scene through a free online database where anyone who got their DNA tested through a company like 23andMe could upload it. A suspect was found because a distant relative had shared their genetic information. Read that again. A suspect was found because a distant relative had shared their genetic information. They doxed you, bro. Showing how DNA data, unlike other kinds of data, is unique because it's linked to and potentially exposes information about family members. No, no there's no potential about it. It does. Okay? It does. She acknowledges that privacy privacy is top of mind, both for consumer and her executive team. She said that the company hired a new chief security officer who previously ran security at, security at Okta earlier this week. Quote, I think the tech world needs to own this better communicate. Pri- uh, sorry. I think the tech world needs to own this better communicate privacy standards to build trust, she said. 
I want to jump in and really own it. That's a terrible sentence. Wajikaniki said other factors could be that people fear an economic downturn and they don't want to spend a few hundred dollars on a genetic test. That might make it expensive for 23andMe to acquire customers via social media platforms like Facebook. If the early adopters have already bought tests and the next potential batch of users are reluctant to spend. I'm going to stop it right there because it's really all you really need to know. All right. Um, privacy is a concern. Now, as to whether or not that's the why 23andMe is dropping like a stone as far as people getting genetic tested, I don't know. I really don't. In fact, my gut says no, that that's not it. Why? I don't think really people give that much of a shit about their privacy. Um, I mean, there, you know, and there's there's gradients of that privacy. I'm not going to hole myself up in a cave so that nobody ever sees my face ever. That's not part of being a human. So right out of the gate, because we're social, we've compromised our privacy. I think that that's okay. We've been walking around the streets of cities and out in the country and meeting neighbors and having conversations with people that we've just met. If we didn't have those conversations with people that we just met, we would never have friends. We would never get married and we would never have kids. And you can kiss the human species goodbye. So from the outset, we've got a privacy issue. And I think it's okay. That part. But as you start digging into like more and more, you know, layers of your privacy, well, we, we've hit, I, I th- kind of think that we've almost hit rock bottom insofar as just giving your DNA up for testing by a private company whose uh, end-user license agreement clearly states that they now own that data. Now, they probably can't, you know, like, I, I don't know, uh, patent one of your genes and say, and then send you a bill for having that gene if it's, a, you know, a gene that's found like everywhere. But... That whole thing with the Golden State killer guy, that's where we're starting to get into major problems. That's why I will not send a sample of my genetic material. Sadly, I have members of my family who have sent theirs, and they ain't distant, okay? That sucks. That sucks for me. But what am I going to do? Call them up and bitch them out? I mean, at this point... We got a real major philosophical question about privacy here. My, when, when, when your free will as a human being impacts my privacy, who's got say? That's a huge question. I don't have an answer for that. And anybody who tells you they do is either, I don't know, I think they may be lying or they may think that they do. I'll, I'll give it, I'll, 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 I'll color it in, in a, in a, a decent light. They think that they have the answer, but they don't. But this is a huge problem. When your free will impacts my privacy, uh, where do we go? And I mean, there, there's cases in which that would be easy to determine, but at the genetic level, when like, especially, I mean, a family member that doesn't even, I don't know. Well, I was about to say something, but it's going to end up being stupid. I'll go ahead and say it anyway. If they don't know of my existence and they're a family member, it doesn't impact. Well, of course it impacts because at that point, all they really have to do is go, well, will it impact my sister? Will it impact my mom? 
Okay. At that point, they, you know, you guys should be thinking about these types of things and not because it's, you know, if they're a murderer, they probably need to be behind bars or whatever, because that's not good for society. You know, people going out and just like, you know, killing people, not good. That's just not cool. But there's other things like all of a sudden, like somebody, like a cousin puts their genetic material and I've got two other relatives. One of them is a murderer. Oh my God. And that person got put in, put behind bars. I didn't even know him. But then all of a sudden I go to my bank and they go, you know what? You were related to that murderer guy. I think we're going to like end our business relationship with you. Uh, your bank account is frozen for the next 90 days. And at that point we'll cut you a check for all that you're owed. And there's nothing I can do about it. It's not outside the realm of possibility, y'all. It's just, it's just not, I'm, I'm saying. A quarter of Brits call for teaching crypto at schools amid fears of a recession. This is January the 23rd. Priyeshu Garg is writing for CryptoSlate.com. According to a census-wide survey, 25% of millennials say they are planning to invest in digital assets in 2020, while 37% believe their bank should provide access to cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrencies should be taught at schools, and banks should provide their clients with access to digital assets. These are the thoughts of almost a quarter of UK residents who seem to be extremely welcoming to the new asset class. According to a new study from CoinBurp, a UK-based trading platform, 24% or just under one quarter of Brits believe cryptocurrency should be added to the national curriculum. The study cited a survey of over 2,000 professional workers in the UK conducted by polling company CensusWide. Other questions answered in the survey show similar data. A combined average of 25% of 16 to 34-year-olds surveyed said that they are planning on investing in cryptocurrencies in 2020. More than a third of surveyed workers believe banks should hop in on the crypto bandwagon as well. According to a press release shared with CryptoSlate, 37% of 16 to 24-year-olds believe that their banks should provide access to cryptocurrencies. And while data presented by CoinBurp goes to show just how fast crypto adoption is happening in the UK, it also highlights a very important problem facing the industry worldwide. The survey found that just 15% of those older than 55 believe they would benefit from cryptocurrencies being taught as, as a subject in schools. When it comes to banks providing access to cryptocurrencies, the numbers remain exactly the same. CoinBurp noted that this suggests there is a generational divide in the public interest when it comes to learning about cryptocurrencies. The company also believes a lack of understanding of blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies in general could be damaging to the future of students, quote, should another financial crisis hits the UK. Peter Wood, the CEO of CoinBurp, said, quote, with trust in established financial institutions at an all-time low, the need for preparing the next generation to understand, invest, and use digital currencies is absolutely vital. The future of money is currently a hot topic in the UK. As the country's national bank has teamed up with other central banks to access the case for launching, or sorry, assess the case for launching their own digital currencies, local reports have shown. Most analysts and economists have praised the move, which many believe is fueled by a fear of Facebook's digital currency Libra set to be released this year. The growing fear of recession surrounding Brexit 
could also be one of the contributing factors. I don't know. I don't think so. But yeah, there, so there you go. You got uh, <laughs> a quarter of people who, uh, in the UK at least, who think that this is important enough to teach in their public school system. And we won't get into public school systems. But also interesting in this is the generational divide. That, I believe, is probably everywhere in the world. You've got one generation that doesn't trust shit <clears throat> competing, or not competing, but like, I don't know, snuggling up next to a generation that they're, that's their entire, um, their, their history is this legacy financial system. That's all they've ever known. How on earth do you expect more than a handful of these guys to just say, oh yeah, no, that's not, that's not going to happen, which is why this is going to take longer than we thought. That's okay. I can wait. You know, it, would it be nice if I was a billionaire tomorrow? Yeah, that would be awesome. But I'm not, <laughs> I don't think that that's really a valid use of, of my neural energy, if you know what I mean. Anyway, there's your morning roundup. And since we were just talking about the children and that generational divide between those who kind of get it and those who don't need to get it, uh, we're, we are talking about the generation of children. And going forward, there will never, you know, since 2009, uh, January the 3rd, 2009, there has never been a child born that was not born into the world that we know of as Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, although really only Bitcoin matters. Um, but since we are talking about the children, I thought we'd have a little bit of Billy Thorpe. Children of the sun 
right, guys, as promised, <clears throat> as promised, I'm going to do something on uh, what's known as Terra Preta. Uh, this also has a lot to do with uh, the subject of biochar, which I, I did cover in way earlier episode. Um, but there's there's no reason not to go over some of this stuff again, because it, this shit is important and it's becoming really important now over the <laughs> Like as of late, because I'm like I said yesterday, I'm seeing a lot of people wet their diapers all of a sudden, like like OG Bitcoiners all of a sudden freaking out about climate change, you know, and I can only assume that it has something to do with that. The market's kind of boring right now. I mean, we've been chilling out for two years, just like going, you know, waiting and waiting and Yay, a hundred point rise or, oh my God, a 50 point drop. So the only thing that I can assume is that they're, you know, trying to get into something else. I don't know. Any, anyway, I, I'm, it just goes on and on and on. And like some really cool people that, that I, I, and I still respect them. I mean, there's no reason to just hate somebody because they're, you know, wet in their pants. <clears throat> you know, it's a bladder control issue. Come on guys, let's, let, let's be real. But uh, I want to talk about, Terra Preta, and this is going to be more than one talk um, because uh, the subject's pretty large, and it's and in my opinion, damn fascinating. So buckle up. This may be a I may be doing this for a little while, but as far as Terra Preta is concerned, our story is going to begin with a gentleman by the name of Francisco de Orellana. Now, this dude lived in, I don't know, mid to early 1500s, okay? Um, and he was part of the Spanish explorations of the New World. And I'm talking like, you know, Columbus discovered the, you know, well, uh, there, there's some issues whether or not Columbus discovered first or not. We're just, for the sake of argument, Columbus discovered the new world in, you know, what, 1492, 1493, 1492 or something like that, when he slammed into, uh, the Caribbean islands after that. Okay. A whole bunch of people came over, including one of the most famous conquistadors, Cortez. There was a whole bunch of them. Cortez wasn't the only guy. There was this other guy, uh, named, um, Gonzalo Pizarro and Francisco Pizarro. These, these two dudes were brothers. Um, now <clears throat> what they did is they came over and they slammed into Nicaragua, which is North of Panama. And when they slammed into that thing, they started their explorations and they went South and they went across Panama and they went down all the way onto the uh, Pacific side of South America into Ecuador. And they, they hung out there for a while, but they heard rumors of the possibility that, and I'm not talking about the city of gold here. We're talking about cinnamon and some other things. At the time, cinnamon was really important. And if, if the Spanish could figure out a way to have their own stranglehold on cinnamon somewhere else, then they weren't going to have to get it from Ceylon. Um, yeah. And like, you know, in around, you know, the Indian peninsula and, and those, those types of places where they had to go around, uh, what was it? The Cape of good hope, uh, South, uh, South of Africa. 
<clears throat> which is a brutal, from what I understand, an absolutely brutal uh, seagoing um, voyage. In either event, there was a possibility of, of cinnamon there. So they set out on this expedition to go find cinnamon. Now, remember, they're on the west side of South America, okay? At this point, they're not, you know, the Amazon is sort of like, you know, they heard about it. I'm sure somebody has, you know, seen the mouth of it, the Amazon, but it, this was, nobody had mapped it. Nobody had been like, you know, traveling up it or anything like that at, by this time. So this guy, Oriana, came came along for the ride as sort of second in command for um, Francisco Pizarro, who was charged by Gonzalo Pizarro because he was the governor at the time of this place called the, the local governor in Quito, Ecuador. And they he sent this expedition, uh, he sent his brother on an expedition down the Amazon. Well, bad shit happened way early on. I mean, really early on. And <clears throat> battles ensued. They had like some problems with the, you know, the in, <clears throat> the uh, indigenous population was not all, all that happy about them being there. And cutting to the chase, he told his second in command, Francisco Oriana, <clears throat> to build a boat, put into the river. At the time, they were on what was called the Coco River. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm having allergies again. They put in on the Cocoa River, which was one of the tributaries uh, or is one of the tributaries of the Amazon River starting in the Andes Mountains in Ecuador. Okay, so they're way on the other. I mean, they are literally at the headwaters of the Amazon River. So Oriana takes like, I don't know, like 270 people, like uh, Spanish guys and like 4,000 Indians that, well, that wasn't Oriana. That was Francisco Pizarro. When all the crap happened, they literally escaped with like hardly any of that left, but they were so low on food that Francisco, for whatever reason, decided to send Oriana continuing down the river in search of food and to get back to him. Well, the problem was is that you're not really going to be able to row against the stream. That's where that's where the history kind of breaks down for me because some of this shit doesn't make any sense. They at that time they probably would have known that there's you're just going to go down the Amazon. You're not going to be able to row this back, row back, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, Oriana continued down the Amazon and had a whole host of problems, but it's what he saw that is the start of this entire story. He was describing massive civilizations all along the Amazon River, on both sides of the Amazon River. And from the tributaries to where it gets so big that you kind of can't, if you're in the center of it, you kind of can barely see either bank. All through those travels, Oriana kept writing in his journal about these massive cities, hundreds of thousands of indigenous peoples, and like food everywhere. There's just food everywhere. And one of the things that was known about the Amazon, even way back in 1540 or whatever, whenever this thing, whole, the whole thing started, is that jungles, and they had seen them before the new world because they were going, you know, 
Africa, India, these things have jungles too. One of the things about jungle soils is that jungle soils suck. They suck real bad, in fact. It's almost it's almost impossible to conceive of just how much vegetation can grow in this shitty soil. But it doesn't grow like food planted by people all that well. Okay. So the whole question about how there could be this many people in the Amazon basin, uh, was, well, it was automatically called into question. And because there was just, there's no way that this much cultivated food and cultivation back then was a lot different than now. It was like not exactly row crops. Okay. But even back then they were like, if there's just no way that, that these soils would be able to support this many people. They knew that back then. What they didn't know is what was going on in the soil in the Amazon where these people lived. And so here's where Terra Preta comes in. And Terra Preta basically means black earth. Okay. <clears throat> if you look at the soils, if you were to take a shovel into a non-Terra Preta uh, holding r- region of the Amazon, you dig up soil, it's like orange and light tan, and it's just there's no organic. I mean, like there's a leaf litter on the t- on the top of the soil that is probably pretty rich, but it all gets washed away. It's a continuous, this the continuous canopy dropping leaves all the time that is the only way that the that the jungle at this point gets enough nutrients to be able to stabilize itself. But food, no. For nutrient dense food, you need a lot of stuff in the soil. Over the centuries, and many, many centuries, the indigenous people before the arrival of the Spanish, they were making terra preta soils, and they were doing it probably at first unknowingly. All right, so you got a group of people, and people do what? They eat, and they defecate, and they urinate. Among other things, they, I mean, they sleep, they, you know, they get married, well, not get married. I don't know what their, their thing was back then. They had kids, right? They did all the stuff that humans do, but the nastier parts of the human the thing is taking a shit, going, taking a whiz and eating food. And there's stuff left over from that food. Like you eat a fish, you're not, generally speaking, you're not going to eat the skull in the spine, Maybe they will eat like the fins and stuff like that, but there's food waste. There's human waste. All right. So what they were doing, at least in theory, because we don't really know how it started, but if you have a population of people and they are pooping, you need to get the poop away from where the people live because that will cause disease. It just, it just does. So, but they can't go too far. We, we've you know, mitigated that problem somewhat by having very long pipes that terminate in our houses and then also terminate on the other end at a sewage treatment plant so that we can flush all this right out of our house. It goes down a pipe for miles. Uh, they didn't, obviously, they didn't have that, but they obviously aren't going to walk enough distance to get this thing away from them. So what they were doing is that they were kind of pooping in chamber pots. And they were burying those pots with their poop away from their settlements, not too terribly far away, but far enough away. Now, 
when they've got poop, when you've got poop in a pot, I know this is gross guys, but you know, I'm a, you know, I was trained as a biologist. It really actually doesn't bother me one bit, but just bear with me. What they come to find out is that if they sprinkle charcoal over the poop, it doesn't smell. And then they can keep it in their house until it's full. And then they take it outside and they throw it into a pit that they dug. Some pits were deeper than others. But just think of it. They would dig a a pit, maybe months and months and months of a few hundred people, all their, not urine, because they would just go up, you know, by a tree at that point. But the poop, that's a problem. And all the fish waste and anything that they were eating at the time, all, you know, leaf litter, they were, you know, they, but they knew how to make charcoal all the time. So they were using the charcoal to keep, keep all the, the smell down. So the charcoal and the poop would end up in this, in these pots. And then the pots would get thrown into this ditch. And after it got full, they'd cover the ditch. Wonderful thing that happens here is fermentation occurs. Yeah. Poop can ferment. And when it does that, it changes into humic, humic acids and the things that, that go in to make what's called humus, which is the black, rich stuff that you find in your soil. So multiply this by all these indigenous populations across the Amazon and a hundred, you know, over hundreds of years, all of a sudden they've got soil that is for anywhere between 18 inches and 80 inches deep that is rich, black, filled with potassium, phosphorus, nitrogen, you name it, man. It's all, it was all in there. They were harvesting things out of the river and they were hard, you know, whatever it is that they could scrounge out of the, out of the, uh, uh, forest and like going and hunting small animals and mammals and that. And they were converting that into poop. And then they were burying the poop with charcoal. The charcoal is really what started the whole, uh, process of getting it to be terra preta. So all along the Amazon basin now over hundreds of years, now they have really fertile soil. And that's exactly how all the indigenous people, the hundreds of thousands of people that Oriana described in his, in his book or his uh, diary, that's how they were able to survive. Now, fast forward, people came, he made it all the way, you know, there was no way he was getting out of the Amazon. So he made it all the way to the end. <clears throat> and he ended up like his book ended up in the hands of, you know, a few or his diary ended up in the hands of a few other people. And they went, you know, a few years later, I can't remember exactly how long, but enough time to go along where they were able to start sailing up the Amazon river and they didn't find any people. There was nobody there. It wasn't like the, everything was overgrown. There was like very, no people or very, very few people. And they thought Oriana was lying. They're like, this is bullshit. There's nobody here. You know, what, what's going on? Come to find out they all died. <laughs> they all died within years. There's, there are statistics um, that suggest that it may have been a die-off of like 95 to 98% of all the humanity that lived in the uh, Amazon basin died because of the dis- European diseases that came along with the Spaniards at the time. Uh, that's kind of well known, but what wasn't well known was the amount of population that was in the Amazon at the time. So w- 
what does all this mean? It all, it all means that there, now we know that there was enough fertile soil in the Amazon basis, basin that was anthropogenic in nature. It didn't naturally occur. It couldn't. And we're talking 80 inches deep of top, of the richest topsoil that you'll ever find. In If you were to go in your backyard, you'd be lucky to find an inch to two inches of decent, even remotely something that could be classified as topsoil, okay? We're talking 80 inches of it. So why the, do I bring this up at all? <laughs> because of people wetting their diapers about climate change. Well, I see a lot of people wetting their diapers about climate change, and yet there's they, they've got nothing to sink their teeth into as to how to get the CO2 out of the atmosphere. I'm not of the mind that I'm all that concerned about it. Um, I'm, just, I'm just not. I've been in biology and ecology for too long to note natural cycles. But That doesn't mean that it's not good for soil to be able to take CO2 out of the environment, the environmental air, condense it into charcoal, thereby having crystalline carbon, and then dump it into the soil for no other reason than to enrich soil and make it to where it can grow damn near anything. Now, I'm not suggesting that you poop in a bucket. There are people that do this, okay? Don't give them any shit. They're, you know, they're okay. They're 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 good folk, right? You don't have to do that. I don't do it. I'm not going to go poop in a bucket and then like do all the stuff necessary because it's like a year-long process. But what you can do is you like it's possible to make biochar by yourself or You can go buy it. They have bags of this stuff that you can order. And what's great about carbon is that as long as it's bone dry, big bags of it uh, are easily shipped because they're light. That's what I like about this stuff. And then you can, now the problem, the only problem is, is that it has to be treated. Generally speaking, you want to take biochar and mix it in with compost so that all the organisms in the compost can get into all of the spaces that is bi- that biochar provides. More on that later, but we're not going to do that today. This is just sort of the kind of where we're going with all this, this whole thing. <clears throat> After about six months or, you know, depending on your compost pile, three months, as long as all the nooks and crannies of the, of the biochar is filled with organisms like fungi, nematodes, little tiny arthropods, bacterium, all manner of little, oh, and protozoa and little beasties and whatnot like that. Now, when you bury that into the soil, everything is in that biochar that soil is looking, not the soil is, the soil's not looking for it. The soil's just a vehicle. The plant roots are looking for stuff. And biochar provides what's been described as a coral reef for the soil. And if you know anything about coral reefs, you talk about something that's out in the middle, you know, not in the middle of the ocean, but something that's out in the ocean that everywhere else in the, you know, a lot of other places in the ocean will be devoid of fish life and all kinds of stuff. Except when you get to a coral reef, all of a sudden life explodes because of the coral reef and all the things that it provides. The same thing is true with biochar. Now, the biggest part of this 
if I put carbon into the soil as crystalline, right, a crystalline solid of carbon, it stays there for a minimum of a 1,000 years as best as we can tell. The Terra Preta sites in the Amazon, and there's it's not just in the Amazon. This shit's been found in China, India, Europe, uh, like all over the damn place. So it's not just the Amazonians that they just did it the best, okay? But this is has been known in ancient agriculture for a long, long time. We lost it. But it stays in there for a thousand years and it gets bigger. The terapredocytes in Amazon have been, uh, at, since they've been studied since the 40s or the 50s, they're getting bigger and nobody's adding material to it. They're doing it all on their own. Again, something we'll get into later. <clears throat> but when you pull, when you, like if I bury a pound of just crystalline carbon in the form of biochar or charcoal, I am sequestering 3.6 pounds of CO2 equivalent from the atmosphere into the soil where it will not move for a minimum of 1,000 years. And if I do this right, it will actually grow. And the only way it can grow is by sucking in yet more CO2. All right. That's one of the ways if you're, if you are wetting your diapers about CO2 in the atmosphere, there's something that you can do right now. If you're like, if you go, if you barbecue, there's always some, some amount of charcoal that's left over. Like uh, in my Weber grill, when I spin out all the ashes, some chunks of charcoal come out with it. If you screen the charcoal from the ash and take that charcoal and bury it, you've just sequestered oh, 3.6 equivalents of its weight in CO2 in the ground for a thousand years. You can do that today. You don't have to wait for permission. You don't have to wait for somebody to tell you, Hey, it's a good idea to bury charcoal. Like I'm kind of doing right now, but never mind. <clears throat> you can do that today. There is an entire industry that's being born around biochar right now as we speak. And if God, you know, if the governments or whatever decide to do something stupid like tax the shit out of us for CO2 and then somehow or another make that money available in some part or parcel to people who might want to start a company, being able to say, I can sequester 3.6 pounds or 3.6 weight equivalents to every one weight equivalent of carbon of CO2 in the ground for thousands of years, you might just get paid. You literally might just get paid. I There's a whole, like there's an industry being born up around this, like I said, as we speak, and there's a lot more to it. And we'll get into all of that, but this is just sort of the introduction into biochar and its relationship to Terra Preta and how the hell it is that we found it and what it means for carbon sequestration. Because again, if you're wetting your britches about carbon sequestration, it is not, it, it's something that you can do by going to your barbecue grill today and getting the chunks of, of leftover um, charcoal out and putting it in your I don't know, flower garden. It's better to charge it with compost. But if, you know, if you really freaking out, then you can go get that shit and you can start burying it in the ground today. My suggestion is start keeping a compost pile. Throw all of your kitchen waste, 
uh, I would throw bones of stuff, you know, like bones of fish, but not like chicken bones or anything like that. Cause it'll collect rats. Um, no meat, no fat again, rats. It'll, it'll signal to rats that there's something there, but banana peel, everything. I mean, if it has anything to do with vegetable matter, get it in the compost pile and, and put like leftover charcoal into that pile and use that. And that way you can actually say when somebody gets in your ass about it, uh, that you are doing, that you're doing something, stop bitching, you know, stop bitching at me, man. I just buried 3.6 pounds of carbon dioxide in the, in the soil and it's never coming out for 1000 years. That has a tendency to shut people up. Right. So that's good. That's going to do it for the terror predator for today, but we're, I'm, I'm going to put this together in a little bit better organization, um, for later. And we'll go through some of these things because again, it's, it's a big, big subject and it could be a profitable industry. Just saying. Daily Train Wrecked brought to you by Roger Ver. That's Roger K. Ver on Twitter. He says sometime today or last night, easy, colon, Having BTC miners pay 95% of the money to fund BCH protocol development, hard, colon, figuring out who gets to spend the money and on what. And he's linked to a Reddit post. Um, it looks like it may be from Andreas Antonopoulos. I'm not sure. Uh, he says, oh, no, it's not Andreas. I'm, I guess it's one of his. So a lot of people are looking at that going, what the hell? What what the hell does that even mean? BTC miners, Bitcoin miners, actual Bitcoin, apparently are going to pay 95% of the money to fund the BCH protocol development. As you know, they haven't, Roger et al. have announced a tax, a 12.5% mining tax on this stuff. Okay, so... Um, for, for protocol development. So how the hell does this relate to BTC at all? Like literally at all. Um, well, I found it. It's coming from the blog post. Cause we talked about this yesterday. Uh, I found the part in the blog post that he's talking about and it's complete. It's you, you just bear with me, man. The blog post, I can't remember the, the guy's name. He's one of the dudes that's it, there's four guys. It's like Jihan Wu, uh, a guy named Harpo and Roger Ver, and then the guy that wrote this blog post announcing the 12.5% tax that they want to put in sometime mid-May. Um, I guess they're going for right before the halvening. Uh, anyway, listen to this. Check this out. The Shaw 256 ecosystem. That's That's the header for this. Because of the hash ratio between BTC and BCH and the difficulty adjustments that maintain an equilibrium, it is the entire set of SHA-256 mining, including BTC mining, that bears the cost under this plan. 
This is counterintuitive. With 12.5% of the coin base being donated, then on first glance, it would appear that BCH miners simply give up 12.5% of their rewards and would then lose 12.5% of their hash as well. However, after difficulty adjusts on BTC, it is a different story. Assume round numbers for illustration. BTC is 97% of hash and BCH is 3. If BCH gives up 12.5% of its reward, that 3% goes to about 2.6% and BTC would go to 97.4%. 0.375% of the total SHA-256 rewards are being pulled out of the entire system but this cost will be split between BTC and BCH in the same ratio as the hash. The BCH hash rate will be diminished by 12.5%, but BTC mining will bear 97% of the cost of the diminished profitability because there will be more hash competing for the same BTC reward. And what, it is all, what does it all mean? Nothing. It means nothing. <laughs> it means absolutely freaking nothing. Why? Well, let me tell you. I was having a discussion with somebody on Twitter, Karsten BKK, in fact, um, and I was uh, pointing, pointing this part of that blog post out to him because he was he was referencing the, the same uh, tweet that Roger had, had initially put out. He said, I fail to understand how. Is anybody able to explain their idea? And that's that, that thing about BTC paying 95% of the money for the BCH protocol development. That's where this started. Remember, that's the actual train wreck. So um, I gave Karsten the, the part of the blog post that I think that they're what, you know, I'm pretty sure that this is what they're talking about, or this is where this part of the blog post is where Roger Ver is getting this whole 95% of the BTC paying 95% of BCH protocol development. So what, so he says a lot of numbers that don't make any sense at the moment, where does the 0.375% come from? My, my response is that it's gibberish with the sole purpose of allowing the retort of any criticism to go something like this, quote, well, you clearly can't math, so we're done here, end quote. It's bullshit, and I predict a maximum of one major fork at the time of implementation and several forks in the ensuing weeks. I am going to go ahead and make the prediction. I don't make price predictions because I have zero idea what the hell is going on when it comes to BTC price, but this one, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and put my ass on the line. I suspect that at the time that they implement this on the day, and they're saying May 15th in the blog post, on whatever day this goes live, there will be a fork. There will only be one fork, but there will be a fork after this. After a few blocks go by and a couple of days after that go by, there's going to be a complete splintering of whatever is left of BCH. That's the prediction. There's your smoldering pile. Wow, this may very well be the longest one that I've ever done. 
We're at a minute and four or uh, an hour and 14 minutes. Sorry about that, guys. So here's your joke. Dad says jokes. Sorry, sir. We don't serve time travelers here. A time traveler walks into a bar. Yep. Yeah, that's a, re- a complete reversal of a joke. The punchline comes first. Uh, and it's not even it's not even good. It's just an interesting way to present a joke. I'd like to see it where there was a cycle of that, but eh, be that as it may, we ain't got time for it anyway. So takeaways today, I'm going to be on Adam Meister's show. Adam Meister, also known as at Tech Balt, B-A-L-T, Tech, T-E-C-H, Balt, B-A-L-T. I'm going to be on his show here in about, it's 11.52 a.m. my time, and uh, he's going to start recording here at about 12.30, so I got a ski daddle, but uh, if you're following Adam Meister, or if you're not following Adam Meister, you probably should. I Adam Meister was actually one of the very first people that I started listening to when I entered this space. It was uh, uh, Trace Mayer, Thomas Hunt from World Crypto Network, um, Adam Meister, Tone Vase, uh, oh God, I can't remember who else. A couple of uh, a couple of other people, but uh, you know Adam Meister. I've been listening to you know his show for a long time, and I've been really honored. Uh, I think this is going to be either my third or fourth appearance on his show. I'm really honored that he continues to ask me to come on and lay out my blithering idiocy <laughs> to his to his audience, so that other people can be infected by the idiocy instead of just you guys. So if you haven't uh, if you haven't seen his show, the One Bitcoin Show, and I think this one's called uh, the Week in Bitcoin, um, he he does he 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 does them all the time, and they're great. He's got all kind. He's got a huge network of people that he can get to come on his show, and they're all great. I I love just listening to all these you know all these people. Um, so I'm going to be doing that. Uh, if you're not following me, if you just found this show and you like it and you want to listen to more, it's on iTunes. It would be really great to get some five-star reviews out of y'all. That would be like totally awesome. Also follow me on Twitter. I am at B-E-N-N-D-7-7. That's B as in Bennett. E-N-N-D as in David 77 on Twitter. Um, yeah, give, give me a follow, uh, send the show to your friends. This is like, if you want to keep up with what's going on, on like as close to a daily basis as I can give you guys, um, then listen to the show because I go basically the, the meat and potatoes of the show is the news that's going on either the day before or the morning of, I usually try to figure out a way to put the show together where, uh, it's really relevant for that particular day. And so anyway, uh, again, follow me, Give me a five-star review if you can. I, I would appreciate it because I do appreciate your time. Uh, y'all have a wonderful weekend, and I'll see you on the other side of that. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.